Who is your favorite actor or actress? Go. Tell me. Hugh Jackman. Who else? What did you say, James? Matt Damon. Yes. Will Ferrell. Oh, man. Hilarious. Who else? Who else? We need some ladies. Yes. Keanu Reeves is a lady. Yes. Oh, man. It's the Matrix. Emma Watson. Yeah. Emma Watson. Good one. Julia Roberts. Anybody? I heard that. Yeah. What would you say? Glenn Close? I don't know Glenn Close. Apparently I do. I'll have to look. I'll have to Google. Fatal Attraction? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't ever see that movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I seen it at, I seen it at Blockbuster when I was a kid. I don't know. Um, acting. We love, we love acting. We love... Um, we, we love uh, you know, dressing up for stuff. It's, it's fun. And, and I'll get back to the actors in just a second. Um, have you ever dressed up for something and, and played a role? Maybe you were in a play one time. Have you ever, I mean, Halloween, anybody, right? You put on a costume, you, you wear a mask, and you, you're, you're Zorro. <laughs> Who is Zorro? That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> Called it. I'm Zorro this year. Um, but uh, you ever do that? Maybe just p- paint your face to go to a, a, a ball game or be crazy. Or uh, maybe you've got more and you paint your belly because you're one of those guys. Um, we don't have to dress up, we don't have to go do stuff because it's fun. It's fun to play, it's fun to dress up. My kids do it all the time. Uh, my kids have a big, they're serious about dress up, okay? Like if you got kids, are they serious about dress up? Like it's for real. They go into full on character, they will not break character. The other day I was in my room, I got attacked by Spider Man. Two Spider-Mans, one Spider-Man and one slightly shorter Spider-Man. <laughs> and, they, and they try to beat me up, but I guess I have superhuman strength because, like, I totally beat up Spider-Man. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we, we love to act and we love to dress up. And, you know, there's something to that. And I think that the, the cool thing is when, when you get to that phase where you're a Morgan Freeman or you're a Julia Roberts, you, you develop this level of perfection in your skill. The, the lengths that people go to as actors to kind, of, um, to kind of become a character is incredible. People will gain weight or lose weight for roles. Some people, uh, Hugh Jackman's a great example, will get absolutely shredded, ripped to be Wolverine, you know. Like all these people who, they, they, they modify what they look like. They'll learn accents, you know. They'll study a, an individual from history. Did you ever see Ray Charles, uh, the Ray Charles movie with Jamie Foxx? I mean, you watch that guy, and like by the end of the movie, you're like, I'm pretty sure that that's not Jamie Foxx. Like that's, that is Ray Charles. And so you see these characters, and they go in the zone. And so here's the thing about acting that's fun. That's why it's entertaining. Because there's this tension that exists. There's a tension between what you know is real, like that's Jamie Foxx, and what you know is not real, like that's not Ray Charles. You know what I'm saying? There's this, there's this tension there, and the greatest actors and actresses will, will kind of massage that tension out until you get to the point where there's no line right? And you're just, you're captivated by the role, and you just want to see more, and you want to watch them, and you want to be a part of that. And that's why they make millions of dollars pretending to be other people. Uh, great actor ha- acting happens when the audience is convinced that you're someone that you're not, okay? I want to start with that mindset today, because we're getting into this teaching time, and we're in God for the rest of us. This is week four, and we've gone over a lot of things. And, and the whole idea of this series is that, you know, what is it that we need to be for God to love us, right? And we said that, you know, you don't have to be super put together and perfect and ultra-religious or any of these things for God to love us. In fact, God is for the rest of us. He's for the normal people. Uh, if there are some of you that were still wanting to pick up one of the books, God for the Rest of Us by Vince Antonucci, there are, I think, three more copies in the lobby, unless they're gone, so you can grab one. But uh, a lot of you are reading that book right now, and it's... The whole idea is kind of, I think it's central to who we are as a church. I think it's to who we are as people because we understand that we're flawed. And to know that God loves us anyway, that's huge, right? That is monumental, it's earth-shaking for us. 
But I want to go back to that tension in acting. The acting between what is real and what is not real. And the reason I bring that up because I think when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to faith, when it comes to Christianity and, and even church, I think we live in a little bit of that tension. The tension where I'm not really sure that someone is what they say they are. In fact, in, in, in the world, we call that something. We call that tension hypocrisy. If you look at a list of the top five or ten things of reasons why people won't go to church, what's one of the top ones? Church is full of hypocrites, right? And are they right? Yeah. Yeah, why? Because we, we all live in that tension just a little bit, don't we? The word hypocrite comes from uh, a Greek word when theater kind of comes through uh, ancient Greece. The word uh, hypocrites is this Greek word, and it just means actor, okay? And so you can even see how it looks very much like the word hypocrite. And so the hypocrites, they, they would be the people who would come on stage, and many times they would wear a mask to cover up their face, many times because they're playing more than one role in a play. And so now I'm this character, now I'm this character. But what happens through time, especially uh, in the early years of theater, people who were actors, they weren't trusted by the general economy. Like you don't want to do work, business, with someone that you know as an actor. Why? Because they're really good at faking it. Like how do I know who I'm dealing with here? Like is this really who you are or are you a faker? And so this idea of a hypocrites being someone that I can't trust, someone that wears a mask, someone that may say one thing and do something else, we get this word evolves in our English language of hypocrite, people who wear masks, who may say one thing with their mouth but do something different with their life. And it's something that we see in church all too often. And so today as we look at this God for the rest of us series, I want to kind of sit in that tension the tension of the hypocrite, and kind of ask the question, what does God do with hypocrisy? Let's not just like, let's not, let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's call the elephant in the room out. Let's just say like, okay, we, we all probably have some level of hypocrisy in our life, right? And so the question is not, you know, how do I completely be perfect? The question is, how does God deal with the hypocrisy in my life? At Venture Church, we love to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. And so we're going to do that today, as always. If you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Uh, we're also going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, if you didn't know this, Luke and Matthew are two uh, biographies about the life of Jesus. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. They're at the beginning of the New Testament, which is like the last third of the Bible. And so uh, we're going to be in Luke and Matthew because they tell a parallel account of the same story. Uh, Luke 22, Matthew 26. If you don't have a Bible today, uh, there's free ones we give away. There's some scattered under your seats you can feel free to keep. And uh, if you don't have one at all, that's fine. You can look at the screen behind me. The scriptures will be up there as well. But we're going to look in Luke 22. We're going we're to meet a character that most of you have probably heard of. In fact, you might not have grown up in church at all. Odds are you've heard of this guy. He has gone down in history as the biggest hypocrite to ever live. He, uh, he's remembered as a villain and a traitor. And the person I'm talking about is a disciple of Jesus named Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. There are a lot of people named Judas in the Bible. Jude or Judas, a really popular name uh, in, in, uh, in Hebrew culture, was Judah. It's one of the 12 tribes of Judah from the original uh, 12 tribes of, of Israel. And so uh, this is an English kind of translation of that name. So we got Judas, and we're going to talk about Judas Iscariot specifically, that guy. If you don't know anything about him, let me give you a little snapshot on who he is. Uh, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Those are his closest followers who were learning from Jesus. And many of them become uh, the leaders of the church when the church begins. But when we land on, on, on Judas, we kind of get something different. Because as these other guys really took off and led and followed Jesus, 
Judas' name became synonymous through history with betrayal and treason. He infamously sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. You know that story? And he set up a sign with the, Jewish, with the, with the guards who were coming to, uh, to arrest him that, you know, I'm going to kiss Jesus on the cheek. That's how you'll know who he is, and then you can arrest that man. That's Judas' story. There really aren't any positive stories about Judas in the Bible, mostly because the New Testament was written after all of it happened, and so who would write positive things about Judas <laughs> after that? Any good thing he ever did was overshadowed by the one majorly bad thing that he did. And so in Luke chapter 22, we're in a place near the end of Jesus' life before he uh, is crucified and then, and then uh, and, and the resurrection, and we're in a Jewish festival known as Passover, uh, Passover is, is a really big deal. It celebrates the Jews being liberated from slavery from Egypt. It happened many hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. But the Jews celebrate it. In fact, Jews today still celebrate it. If you come from a Jewish background, you probably celebrate it. It's Passover growing up. It's, it's a big holiday like Easter or Christmas. Uh, there's, there's parties that you go to. You go with your family. There's traditions. There's gifts exchanged. And one of the biggest parts of the Passover season is the Passover meal. Well, Jesus and his followers, as good Jews, they're going to celebrate Passover together. So they decide to have the Passover meal together. This is what's known as the Last Supper. Uh, you, you see the old, the, the old painting that was done of that. It's pretty, pretty famous. This is the Last Supper. So we're, supper. we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to see that while everyone else in the Jewish world is celebrating, I mean, if you're a Jew, it's Passover, you're like, woo, we're celebrating. One guy is scheming. He's deceiving. He's betraying. Let's see how it plays out. Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. It means he prayed. And he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In this moment, Jesus is doing something uh, that they always did at Passover meals. If you've ever been part of a Passover meal, uh, or, I, I recommend that you, you, you try it. Find a Jewish family or even get online and figure out how to do it yourself. It's kind of neat because there's all kinds of ceremony to it. And there's a lot of memory and there's a lot of symbolism. And so kind of the host or the head of the household would get up and there were steps that they would go through and they would talk about this part of the meal and this part of the meal. So what Jesus is doing is he's playing that traditional role. Head of house, that's what he's doing with his friends here. But he starts to do things a really different way. He's talking about, I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine, that's wine, again, until, you know, this other thing happens. And you could just imagine these men who have been through dozens of Passover meals are like, ah, Jesus, this is not the script, man. This is not what you do here. This is, what are you talking about? What are you saying? Jesus continues in the the ritual, um, verse 19. So he took bread. And he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there was probably a pause here as the guys kind of sat around. They're like, this is, this is really getting weird. Like, why is Jesus talking about this? Uh, they might have asked him about it. We don't know. But they continue in the meal and, and they carry on. Okay, so maybe they talked about it amongst themselves. There were 12 of them, maybe more. I don't know. They, but they were up there and they were eating. And the meal continues, but then there's another step of the meal that happens next, because it's, it's lots, I said, lots of parts, lots of ceremony, lots of sections. So we get to verse 20. So it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Now he's got kind of a cup, imagine a goblet, probably like a little bowl-looking thing. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. 
The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they begin to question among themselves, which of them might do this? Now, you got to remember, these guys have, have been following Jesus faithfully for a long time. Many of them have given up large portions of their life. They've left their job. They've left their families behind. So Jesus is in here kind of saying a really monumental thing. Like, someone's going to betray you? What do you mean? What, it, what does that even mean, Jesus? What do you mean someone's going to betray you? We are your closest friends. We would, each one of us, we would take a bullet or we would take a dagger for each other, you know? We would, we would totally take a hit for you, Jesus. Like, what do you mean someone's going to betray you? So we got to pause the story right there because it goes on and it gets into some other context in Luke's, Luke. Uh, but what I said earlier is that in Matthew, we get a parallel account, okay, because they basically tell some of the same stories, and you get a little different detail. Just like if something happened, Aaron was playing guitar up here earlier. Let's say me and Aaron were both at a ball game, and we both saw the same thing, and we told you about it. I might tell a little bit of different detail than he would because we saw it from different perspectives. So we're going to flip over. If you got your Bible, I'll give you a second to flip over to Matthew 26. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And we're going to see some of the detail that Matthew adds in Matthew chapter 20, 26. It'll be 26, starting at verse 23. I still hear some pages turning, but I'm going I'm to go ahead. You'll get there. Verse 23. It says, Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. The Son of Man is kind of a euphemism for the Messiah, uh, and it, it ultimately is Jesus. Okay, So he calls himself the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. That's cold. That's harsh. And Jesus is sitting with him. Apparently, he's at this, this meal. And this is the moment where Jesus points out Judas. And I guess they were reaching for the salsa at the same time. He's like, the one who puts his hand in the bowl with me. But that's, that's what they're doing. They're having a meal. And so it's like, I imagine there's this moment. You want to know who it is? He reaches to get a chip. It happens that Judas maybe is reaching for the same chip. <laughs> the guy's reaching in the bowl with me. That's who it is. That's the guy who's going to betray me. Verse 25, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. I love Jesus' response to Judas here. He didn't say, yes, guaranteed, you're going to happen. He kind of says, I don't know, it's up to you. You're the one who said that you're not going to betray me. Make it happen. If you know the story, you know that's not what happened. Sometimes uh, something you got to know about G Judas that's happening here is that he had been planning this for a long time. I like to think Jesus probably knew about it. Jesus had the ability as God to know things. He exercises that many times. He tells people what they're thinking. He predicts things are going to happen that are just right around the corner. Uh, it might be that he just heard the rumors from other people. We don't know exactly what way Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. But up until this moment, Judas had been hiding all the details that had been leading up to this moment. And up until now, he'd been seen as a very active member of the disciples. Like, he's out doing all the stuff the disciples were doing. He was loving people. He was going and serving meals to people. He was talking about God's kingdom. He was doing all the things that all the disciples were doing. Uh, one thing about Judas that you've got to know is that Judas was a, a very trusted member of their group. It says in John chapter 12, verse 6, that he held the money bag. Basically, he was the group's accountant. He was their treasurer. And you can imagine if there's a bunch of people traveling in the, in the first century, you want to pool your resources, and some people have more, some people have less. That is, after all, kind of the whole way of Jesus, right? Share. And so the person you give the money to, what does that say about them for you? You trust them. I trust you with this. So he was very active as, as a leader in the group of the disciples. It was a position of trust. The mask that he wore said this, I'm all in on Jesus. I'm all in. You can trust me. 
I'm going to go around. I'm going to tow the party line. I'm going to do the Jesus thing. And so he holds that front all the way up until the point where Jesus is like, someone's going to betray me. It's you. And Judas says, for me? (laughs) Surely not I. And Jesus knew better. Here's the problem. Judas had been wearing a mask. He was put on a show. He was an actor in the play of his life. He was a hypocrite. But why? Why would Judas do this? I mean, he kind of had it made, right? If you, if, you, if you play this story forward, like, these guys go down in history. All the guys who follow Jesus. Now, I don't think any of them were, had, had the forethought enough to know just how significant what they were a part of was. What was Judas's motivation? There's a lot of theories. You can read books on it. There's, there's scholars who have talked all about it. The one that I think is most likely, based on what we see from the Bible, is kind of this. Jesus had become very popular. I mean, he really had. There were thousands of people th- following Jesus around. Uh, and, and not only politically was he popular, like he was getting a lot of t- attention, uh, but he was powerful. Jesus was doing miracles. This dude was raising people from the dead. Like, that just doesn't happen. He's healing people who had leprosy. He's taking people who could not see with their eyeballs and causing them to be able to see with their eyeballs. Like, this is incredible stuff. And so you got to know that Judas is looking at this, and he's like, man, I know a good thing when I see it. Like, I'm not sure what Jesus is all about, but I'm on his gravy train. Like, I'm following him wherever he goes. And so Judas is rising around. Judas wasn't the only one that began to think this one thing. Rumors began to spread about Jesus that he was going to become this great king of the Jews. Maybe he was going to be a political leader. Maybe he was going to be a general. Maybe he was going to lead an uprising against the Romans. And, and, and he was going to shut everything down. And he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Because if you know the history of the Jewish people, they once had a prominent and proud kingdom. But the Romans had come in, actually before the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and on through history, and now the Romans, they had been a conquered people. And so the rumor about Jesus was like, this is it. He's our political Messiah. When they said Messiah, they didn't think save me from my sins. They they thought save me from Caesar. This is a very politically charged, can you imagine? Have you watched the news? Can you imagine a culture of people thinking if we could just have someone that could lead us to something better, right? These are these people. These are the Jews. But it became clear to Judas that Jesus was not about the things that Judas hoped he was about. That Judas wanted power. Jesus talked a lot about peace. Judas wanted position and riches. Jesus talked about giving all your stuff away and living as a poor person. It's not ranking high on my bucket list here, Judas is thinking. Judas wanted prominence. Jesus talked about humility. He said, the greatest in my kingdom is the one who's going to make himself the least. So there's a point at which Judas has to make a choice. He said, I got some influence with Jesus. I'm in the inner crew here. I'm going to leverage my influence with Jesus to get ahead. So he goes and he makes a deal with some Jewish leaders. It was common knowledge that the Jewish leadership in the community was trying to shut Jesus down. He was taking a lot of their attention away from the people that had been coming and giving them authority and prominence, and they didn't like that, and there were other reasons why they didn't like Jesus. And so Judas had heard those murmurings, and he said, this is my chance. So he goes, we read about it in Luke 22, verse 5. It'll just be up on the screen, so you don't have to flip back and forth. It says he meets with these, these Jewish leaders. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Sometimes it all comes down to the money, doesn't it? He consented. And he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. The Judas had a plan. Now, now here's where I want to pause uh, Judas's story. And I want to talk about me and you, okay? Because I think when we look at Judas's story, it's real quick for us to relive that and want to throw stones at him. Be like, man, how are you going to sell Jesus out, man? That's not cool. <laughs> 
Why'd you do that? I would never do that thing. But the reality is, I think that there's a lot about Judas that we could probably all relate with. Because I don't know about you, but I've worn a mask when it comes to how I feel and act about Jesus. You know, I felt like I should believe and act one way, but like when I get into a certain scenario, like, eh, that kind of goes out the window, right? And then in many ways, I've betrayed Jesus in a worse way than even Judas did because I know that Jesus died for my sins and was the son of God. Judas was still figuring that out. And so when I look at Judas's life, instead of wanting to throw stones at him, I think I've convinced myself that it's more important for me to stand in front of me like a mirror and say, what can I learn from this man? And how can I not go the way that he ultimately went? What about you? You got a mask? You ever wear one? Surely you're not wearing one right now, not at church. It's not my goal really to call us out as hypocrites and say, we're all slime balls and we need to crawl under the rug and feel ashamed of ourselves. I think instead it's important that we recognize what's going on and just see what we can do to reverse the trend in our own lives and even in this church community. In fact, I gotta say proudly that as I look over our church family, I don't think we really have a huge problem with masks. In fact, sometimes some of us probably share too much, you know? Like, man, that's too much information. We could probably save that for another time. But the reality is that it crosses over to so many different areas of our life. The mask you wear at work, the mask you wear as a spouse, the mask you wear as a parent, the mask you wear as a PTA volunteer, the mask you wear to the people in your neighborhood. And the truth is that it's not healthy. And it's going to lead to a bad and sad place for us. When I see Judas, I see a mirror. And I'd like to think that I'd never sink as low as Judas did to sell him out. But the hypocrisy isn't normally about one big thing that you do that's bad. Like you think about Judas and everyone's like, betrayed with a kiss. You think about Judas, you think 30 pieces of silver. You think about Judas, you think sold out Jesus. But when you look back through Judas' story and you kind of read between the lines of some of the things that we find out about Judas, we find that his, his hypocrisy wasn't about the one big thing he did. His, his hypocrisy was built on a bunch of small things, daily activities. Before we paint Judas as the ultimate hypocrite, we got to realize where the tension lies for him in his life. See, because there's a spiritual battle happening in his life. And there's a spiritual happening in our lives. There are evil forces in this world that are opposed to God, and it's their greatest interest to shut us down. And one of the best things they can do is convince us that the small things don't matter, as long as we don't let up on the big things. God knows that we mess up. Romans 3.23, you know that verse? It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No surprise to God that we messed up. In fact, he's like, uh, that's why I came down as a human and died. I didn't really want to do that. I knew that you were going to mess up. I knew that you were going to sin. It doesn't really bother me that you did. I wish that you didn't. I don't want to overstate that. I mean, it does bother me. He doesn't like sin at all. But he's like, I recognize that's going to happen. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. The difference is we don't have to stay in that tension. Jesus wants to remake us. He wants us to give us a chance to ch take the mask off. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest teachers of all time, he writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus brings us a new making of ourselves. He recreates us. He says, I know you've messed up, but if you will turn to me, I can make that right. 
The apostle Peter, another great teacher of the early church, he said in 1 Peter 2, 9, he tells us about this new status. And I want you to hear these words. This is God putting a hello, my name is sticker on your chest, okay? If you're in, if you're in Jesus, if you're a Christian, this is what he says about you. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. The priesthood are people who are able to go to God and like say, hey, God, there's sin in the world. We want to pray about it. That's what the priest did. He said, you are that priesthood. You're a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He said, I know you messed up, but here's the deal. I'm calling you out of the darkness. I want to bring you into the light. I want to expose the deeds that happen in secret, and I want to put them out, not to put all your business out on the clothesline for everybody to look at, but that you know between me and you and a few close, trusted friends, you're good. You're good. Is God for the hypocrite? This is God for the rest of us. We'd be like, God for the skeptic. God's for the skeptic. He's cool with your problems. God for the, uh, the hurting. You know, God knows you're hurting. That was the first week. And he's cool with your hurting. He wants to love you. We get to this week. God for the hypocrite. Do we say, God's cool with you being a hypocrite. He's totally cool with that. He makes it very clear that he is not. I want to look at a verse from Amos chapter 5. Uh, this is him talking. This is Jesus talking through the prophet Amos to the nation of Israel. This is what he says there. He says, I hate... I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice offerings, fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Paul's right there real quick. He's talking to people who are coming to the temple. They're making sacrifices, and they're just pouring it in, pouring it in, pouring it in. He says, I don't like that. Let's see why. Keep going. The next verse here. Always, with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, I had a college Bible professor, he said, this is a big but. He thought he was really funny when he said that. (laughs) But, let justice roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Uh, We could look at the rest of that passage and continue to teach through it, but here's what's happening here. The people that are coming to him and offering all these fellowship offerings, these these are agricultural people, so they're they're you know, growing wheat and things. So how do you make gifts to God? I bring my wheat in. I bring my harvest in. That's what I do. And, uh, and, and, and these people are coming to do this. But what God is saying is you're coming and all it is is a show. It's a religious festival show. I hate, I despise your ceremonies. What I desire is a never-ending flow of justice. I desire righteousness. The prophet Hosea says the same basic things in another way. He says, I desire mercy, not just your sacrifices, what God wants from us is something from here. Now, this is what's really interesting because if you read through the Bible, God is big on sacrifice. He wants us to sacrificially love people. He wants us to sacrificially give and serve the kingdom. He wants us to sacrificially be in uh, among people who don't know him and spend time with him. God's all about sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 says that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifice. So what does that mean? God doesn't want our sacrifice or God does want our sacrifice? It's not about does he want it. It's about what's the order that it comes in. He says, first, I want your heart. First, I want your brain. I want want you to be a person that's that's seeking justice and mercy and righteousness and peacefulness and loving people and loving me. And then all of a sudden, the ceremonies and the sacrifices, they've got meaning. That's why my daughter, who's six six years old, she can draw me a picture with a crown on a piece of paper. She got, you know, misspelled words and disproportionate human beings and <laughs> I cherish it 
because she's not just trying to show off. But sometimes I go to a uh, guitar center. <laughs> I'm a musician, and I got to be honest, I don't like going to the guitar center because there's always some cocky guitar jock in there who thinks he's the greatest gifted guitarist since Stevie Ray Vaughan. And all he wants to do is show off. And I'm like, you know what? I would love to jam with you, but I don't really like you very much. <laughs> and the difference is the heart. The difference is, what is the attitude behind that? And Jesus says, or God says through Amos and through Hosea, he says, I want your heart. Don't wear a mask. Don't try to be something that you're not and don't try to show up for me. I'm God. I created the universe, okay? <laughs> I'm not impressed by your show. What I'm impressed by is your heart. So God might not be for hypocrisy. He's not for it. He's not a fan of it. But you know what he is for? You, me, he's a big fan of that. He's going to great lengths to show it. He understands the tension that we're in between what is real, what we imagine to be, and what we might be faking. He understands the tension, and he's okay with the tension. And if you find that you slipped, if you slid a little bit, he doesn't want you to sweep it under the rug. <laughs> he said, just leave it out. Leave that. Let me, let me clean that up. Leave it exposed. Hypocrisy begins when, when we start to do something that, that I've heard called skimming and scheming. Hypocrisy begins with skimming and scheming. I want you to kind of burn those two words in your mind. They're similar but different. Okay, skimming and scheming. Let me explain what this is. Uh, your grandma's made a really awesome cake. It's like the best cake ever. And you're like, Grandma made the lemon cake or whatever your favorite cake is. And she made, she's like, don't touch. You can't have it till dinner time. You're like, why? I'm, I'm, it's right here. Let's just eat it. But you know, grandma's, you got to wait, right? So she steps out of the kitchen and what do you do? You're like, And then you, you get a little fingerprint and the, the icing, but then you got to take a little knife, you're right, you smooth it back out, right? You got a scheme in mind. I'm going to wait for her to step away, and then I'm just going to skim. Take a little bit. She'll never know. It's just cake. You can use your own moral judgment, whether that's a sin or not. I'm fine with it. But when you apply it to more important things, the deal with skimming and scheming is this. It's a plan for incremental secrecy. A little bit here, a little bit there a little bit here, a little bit there. People who get busted for, uh, for, for stealing from their company, they, they don't stand, steal $100,000 in one time. They take 100 bucks here, 20 bucks there, don't cash a check here, keep some cash there. Incremental, incremental secrecy. Judas, his downfall didn't happen all in one fell swoop. His downfall began incrementally. And what he did secretly. We don't know all that was going on with Judas. We can kind of read between the lines of some of the things we read about him in his story. Like I said, no one had anything good to say about him. But I told you earlier he had a position of trust. He was the, he was the treasurer of this, uh, of this group of guys. And in John chapter 12, when it describes that, it actually says, and we found out that Judas was taking some money out of the money bag. He was scheming. He was skimming a little here for himself, a little there for himself, and it adds up. And we don't know all the other things that he did, but anyone that would go this far to sell out a closest friend, you know. You know there were little things here, little things there. He got comfortable in the secrets so that it was easy when he finally got the opportunity to go big because he had settled in to the darkness, to the secrecy, to the incremental personal gain most of us assume that hypocrisy is some big grand scheme. It's a big moment. One day you're going to wake up and so-and-so has, uh, you know, done something in their marriage that's been terrible. They're going to wake up and they've been arrested for stealing money from their job. But the truth is, 
It's small pieces here and there. Uh, the Titanic was this gigantic vessel, okay? It was called the unsinkable ship. And the reason that they were so certain is that the engineers had designed it so that the whole of the ship was compartmentalized, okay? And so if you get a puncture in one of the sections of the Titanic, they could just go down, they close off that compartment, and, and it won't sink. In fact, it could fill all the way up with water, and it could still, still float. They had built it so that uh, up to four of the compartments could flood, and it would still float. That's pretty impressive. What they didn't plan for was that as they hit the iceberg, it busted one, two, three, four, and I don't know how many after that, compartments. It was the busting of the small compartments that brought the unsinkable ship down. So most of us don't suffer from one great event. Most of us scheme and skim in secrecy, secrecy, and it's not very safe for us. And God says, let's bring that into light. I tell my kids all the time, Look, you can come and tell me and your mom, you can tell us anything. And if you tell us, even if it's something really bad that you did, you won't, we won't be mad at you. What we will do is we will help you make it right. Now, they understand sometimes that might involve punishment. Sometimes that might involve them making whatever restitution they need to make. But they can skip the part where I'm angry at them if they would just come and tell me. Because what they've done is they've taken the, the darkness that they've done and they've brought it into the light. they brought it to the correct place. That's what God has done for us, and that's what God does for our hypocrisy. He says, I'm giving you an opportunity to bring it into the light. I love this passage from John. This is a, another one of the Gospels, and this is how he opens up his Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 3. It says this about Jesus. Through him all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that's been made. He's describing how powerful Jesus is. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You will never find a situation in which darkness can completely overcome light. Light in itself kills darkness. Jesus is the light. And he says, I want to shine into the dark corners of your life. I want to expose those areas for you. I want to sweep the dust out from under the rug. I want to put people in your life that you can share with, people that can hold you accountable, people that you can call me like, man, I messed up again. And they can say, all right, let's pray about that. Let's take that to God. Jesus' whole plan was to come to earth and die for our sins and raise from the dead. you got to understand this about Judas. Judas didn't cause Jesus to die. That was Jesus' plan. Go back and read the passages that we read earlier. It's in there. That was the plan. He was going to come and do the thing he was foretold to do. But Judas made the choice to get involved in the evil side of it. You know, Judas could have had the opportunity to come back and seek forgiveness from Jesus. That's what Jesus does, right? If you don't believe that, I want you to look at all the other apostles. Do you realize, we talked about it a few weeks ago, all of the other disciples, apostles, that's the same group of people, they, uh, they all fled. They ran from Jesus. In fact, in the same passage where Judas is told he's going to betray Jesus that night, Jesus also tells Peter, you're going to betray me. You remember that? He says, you're going to do it not once but three times. Yet what we see is a scene later. We saw Thomas a few weeks ago. We see a scene later with Peter. Where Peter sits with Jesus and Jesus is like, I forgive you. Do you love me? Yeah, take, care, take care of my kingdom. Take care of my sheep. And Judah, Jude, Peter is restored. But the guilt that Judas carried with him is kind of the place that I want to give you and let you sit and think about it. Sometimes we feel so guilty about the things we've done wrong that we don't, we don't feel like we're worthy to take it to God. And we're scared to bring it out into the light. You know, ultimately, Judas carried this guilt with him so much that um, sadly, 
Judas, Judas took his own life. He committed suicide. He couldn't stand what he had done. He couldn't live with himself. And I know that Jesus probably was like, man, I wish you'd just come to me, Judas. I was upset, yeah. <laughs> but that was going to happen with or without you. Imagine the testimony of a man like Judas. I was a guy who betrayed Jesus, but he still forgave me. He could definitely forgive you. But it didn't happen. What I think we can learn from Judas's life is, in our hypocrisy, we can either take it to Jesus, or we can let it kill us. I want to be a church that takes the mask off. I want to be a church of people that decides, I'm going to see, I'm going to, I'm going to try to see myself the way God sees me. This week was an epic week in basketball. Um, there, were, there were two words, two names that were constantly on the radio and on television. So y'all help me out. Who were the two names that we heard all the time? Kobe and Curry. Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant. Kobe was retiring. If you don't follow basketball, big deal. 20 years in the NBA, awesome. And then, uh, and then Steph Curry and, and the Warriors and their amazing run. Uh, to, it's, it's just an amazing season. Now, here's the thing. There was a third name that came up with these two names all the time. Do you, do you, can you guess what it is? Jordan. Michael Jordan, why? Because both of these guys have been compared to Michael Jordan. I want to show you two images, okay? And hang on to the things we were just talking about with Judas and, and seeing people, seeing ourselves the way that, that God sees us. I want to show you the first image of Michael Jordan. There he is in his Bulls uniform. Okay, when you see Michael Jordan in a Bulls uniform, what you see is basketball perfection. He's called you know, the greatest to ever played. Uh, you know, six, six championships, five-time MVP, six-times finals MVP. And if you go on Wikipedia, because I did this week, just to see, like, what, what would be all the accolades? I'm not even going to list them all. Like, it's like all these different honors that he has. When you see this, you see basketball perfection. You're like, that's, that's basketball as it should be. By the way, hometown hero from Wilmington, right? Now, now I want to show you another picture. Check out this other picture. Yeah, go White Sox, right. At one point in his career, after he retired the first time, he said, I'm going to go try baseball. We did not see baseball perfection. <laughs> what we heard over and over again, I actually watched some of the things, and I, I'd forgotten some of the stuff about him. He, he did decent. I mean, could you play professional baseball? No, or you wouldn't be here. Um, but so he, you know, he, he hung up, but he wasn't the, the greatest. Here's the deal. When we see our lives, so often we look at ourselves for our failures. We look at us for, for how we are far from God. We look at, you know, I, I don't know if I could ever get to the point like, like Dylan and just take a couple years of my life and go serve somewhere else and still be planning. Uh, I wish you'd have met Dylan three, four years ago. He was like, dude, I'm just trying to figure out God right now. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how I, like, if I can even, like, stop sinning right now. And so when you get on this one thing, we start to see ourselves like Jordan in a Sox uniform. And we're just like, man, I don't know. But if we can see ourselves the way that God sees us, it's like you're a spiritual champion. Why? I don't know, I'm your head coach. Use your metaphor, whatever. I, I got your back. But bring your failure to me. Take off the mask. Are there hypocrites in church? Sure, <laughs> right? No one's perfect. But Jesus allows us to take off the mask and turn our face to him. And he makes us new. I just want to pray for us this morning. Let's pray. God, you're good, and you uh, are faithful. I thank you for stories, uh, even like Judas, that aren't that great to take in. I mean, we, I don't know, I feel for the guy. I, I kind of, guess I'm kind of mad at him a little bit, but <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, you're the God that forgives. For all the times that I've sold you out, 
Sometimes I've done it for less than 30 pieces of silver. I just pray that you uh, continue um, to help us be a community that shines light in dark places. Whether it's the dark places in the, in the city and we, we kind of paint them as these like terrible places of, of sin uh, or really just the secret incremental sin in our life. That we can just stop sweeping that under the rug. We own up for it and we give it to you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.